Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com. Or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How is everybody doing out there today? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn with the Focus Compounding Podcast. Mr. Jeffrey Gannon, how's it going over there? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it doing with you? Going great. (laughs) Cut you off. It's like I know what you're going to say because we say the same thing every single time. time. Hope it's going well for everybody else as well. Thank you so much for tuning in with us here today. We are going to be doing a rapid fire questions. Okay. All right. So this is part one. So that means that there's going to be another part. And a lot of people have sent in questions on Twitter. And if you do want to um, ask questions in the future, you could DM me, tweet at me. I usually save them. Um, And then every now and then I'll do like a call for questions and you can um, send them to me and we'll talk about it on the show. That's at Focus Compound. At Focus Compound. Also, if you do want to get access to our investing idea website where Jeff writes a lot of ideas, go to focuscompounding.com and use the podcast promo code. And what that'll do is it will take $10 off of the price indefinitely as long as you do stay a member. Right. The code's podcast. Spell it for them. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All righty. Cool. So rapid fire, right? So we're going to go, we're going to try to see how long, I don't know how many questions, we'll, we have no agenda, we'll see how many questions we get through for 25 to 30 minutes and okay. kind of go from there. Alrighty, so this guy asked, or gal, what is Jeff's opinion on insider ownership and insider buying and selling in a stock? Can there be other reasons for insider buying other than the insiders think the stock is undervalued? Um, yes, there could be other reasons, but generally, uh, I agree with Peter Lynch, who said there's a lot of reasons why someone might sell a stock, but there aren't a lot of reasons why they might buy a stock. You're not generally going to buy a stock that you think is um, overvalued. So insider buying is always a good sign, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Insider ownership is a little more complicated um, because it means that someone might have more control of the company, things like that. There's certain companies that I look at, um, especially very small companies. I was looking at one just recently, um, which is on my watch list. And uh, two insiders, I think, own close to 40% of the company combined. Um, That presents a problem if they're in management positions, things like that, and they don't, say, want to sell off the company, don't want to borrow money, pay out dividends, do things that might get you better returns. So it's a protection against activism. Sure. So sometimes protection against activism is fine. If you have big insider ownership at Berkshire Hathaway, you probably like the way that Buffett um, runs the company and then it's great. Uh, But if you have big insider ownership at a company that's not run very well or that um, is run for reasons that aren't just to maximize returns, then it could be a problem. But insider buying is always a good sign. Sure. Yeah. What are your, I'll take a step further. Do you ever factor in institutional ownership in like that? Yeah, I don't want to see it. Really? Yeah. Institutional ownership is a thing that you most don't want to see. And why is that? Um, Because institutional ownership basically means that the stock is more likely to be efficiently priced. Mm -hmm. So the thing that- I could say like it doesn't move around as much. Yeah, well, sometimes they move around a lot, but I guess they move around pretty randomly around sort of a, a evaluation that makes a lot of sense. I mean, in panics and things, institutions um, sell pretty quickly and stuff like that. And sometimes I think faster 
than individuals. Certainly in like 2008 and stuff, I saw that stocks, um, big stocks that were owned by hedge funds and things declined a lot more rapidly than stocks that were owned by individuals who seemed more level-headed about that stuff. But um, in general, they've done more research and things, institutions. Um, individuals might be more likely to hold it for a long time, I think, depending on the stock. Um, so there's lots of little microcaps and things where I think that having very, very low institutional ownership is good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that having a lot of reasons why having a lot of insider buying is a great sign. And buying from individuals, individual investors, um, yourself, when you go out and buy the stock is usually more uh, more likely that you'll get a good bargain than buying from some um, hedge fund or some uh, mutual fund or something. Yeah. Sure. Cool. Next question. Do you and Jeff listen to other podcasts? Except from your own. What are your favorite podcasts at the moment? Wow. That's a very good question. <laughs> um, I do listen to other podcasts, not um, investing related usually. I have in the past listened to several investing podcasts, some of which don't podcast regularly. So I don't want to name them uh-huh. and say they should come out with yeah. more regular podcasting. But yeah, in the past, I've listened to lots of investing ones, basically ones that talk about specific stocks. Sure. That's the thing. Yeah. I would say mine probably Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Okay. He yeah. you know covers a bunch of different topics which is and he gets on a lot of uh interesting people. Yeah, that's a really good interview show. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um which podcast do you listen to outside of or outside of investing? Or I mean you said that uh, movies, comedy shows, yeah. movie reviews shows, comedy shows, things like that, yeah. Perfect. And then I also listen to Joe Rogan podcast cuz that's funny. It's- is that how you learn about Elon Musk? Yes. Yes. That's, that's how you learn about Elon Musk. Okay. What do you consider the most important stock metrics to analyze when you try to identify a quality company with a moat, like high and stable ROTC, I'm guessing return on mm-hmm. tangible capital, stability and margins, positive increasing free cash flow, high free cash flow to sales, positive growth, question mark. So what do you consider the most important stock metric to analyze when you're trying to identify a quality company with a moat? Okay, so if you could only have one metric... Um, the one you would want is actually probably the variation in EBIT divided by sales. So operating margin divided by sales, but the variation, not the number. Mm -hmm. So in other words, seeing that a company has a 20% operating margin, but that it varies, um, to be in some years, 19, some years, 21, but it's never 10 or something like that. And you can measure that using standard deviation over a long period of time. Uh, examples of really low ones that you can look for for the kind of stability I'm talking about would be like um, Omnicom, which is an advertising agency, um, Costco retailer. Mm-hmm. Um, they have unusually low variation to the point that um, if you look at a good thing to look at is ask, well, what would four standard deviations look like? Um, the way that um, like a normal distribution works, it would be, in theory, incredibly unlikely that you would ever see a four standard uh, deviation move in something. And uh, and in fact, in some of these, that's true. Like I believe um, with Omnicom, last I looked at it, in the 30 years or something, it had never even had a three standard deviation move. Mm-hmm. So it's a f- so say the standard deviation is 1.2% of the margin or something. The biggest change that you see is like 3.5% or something. So it's not even... Uh, three times the standard deviation. Um, it's just an indication that it's unlikely to lose money in any year. But more than that, it's something about um, basically pricing power. Mm-hmm. So Costco is like the reverse, right? It's not that Costco has um, the ability to charge high prices, but it has the ability to get very low um, costs, 
right? And so it gives an indication that it's a low-cost company there. Or with Omnicom, you're getting the impression probably that there isn't a lot of pushback from clients on exactly what the price is. So the same thing you should see with like a money manager or something, right? That they're not negotiating each case. Okay, we charge 2% of assets in this case, but we're going to charge 1.9 in this one. We're going to, and they want to break on things, you know? So it's the ability to, um, in recessions and things like that, put the, um, and not act as a shock absorber. Other people, your suppliers, your customers, um, suffer more than you do, your competitors, but you seem to be more stable in the overall economy. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good indication that you have a strong um, market position, that you basically have the leading position. If you think of it like a horse race or something, you have the inside pole position. You're in that one slot, and there are others that are six, seven, eight. They're the more marginal ones, and they'll see much more margin variation. Mm-hmm. So Costco, compare that to other retailers, almost all of the retailers have more variation in their margin than Costco does. Things like that. So you want to find the companies that have the, the least marginal, the ones that have the least amount of wobble in their um, earnings relative to sales. Yeah, and, and I will also add that every single company we look at, we go back and look at um, the EBIT and, and mm-hmm. that variation um, as far back as it could go. Yeah, right. That's one of the things that we do. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, in the long run, what matters is uh, the return on capital. Uh-huh. But for a lot of companies, the um, the ratio of assets um of sales to assets the turns is just not going to vary as much so the number that's easiest to look at is the ebit margin the relationship between uh ebit and sales mm-hmm. but it's the variation and that matters most there are stable companies with two percent um uh, operating margins and with 20 percent. it's just a question of how much they move relative to their margin yeah because some people could look at a company and be like oh that's a low margin business and think Maybe I don't want to go there, but that could just be their business model. Right. Costco's super Costco's low margin, way. but yeah. has very stable um, margins. Yeah. Cool. For a concentrated value portfolio, what do you think of the idea of having a rule of not selling a stock you have bought before three years have passed? You think it will increase the quality of decisions and returns for most investors? Um, so I will do it this way. If you can tweak that a little bit, yes. So if you can sell in the first three months but not the three years after that, then yes. It often happens that when you start to buy a stock or get really serious about you're about to buy a stock, um, you start to think a little bit harder about that. I was just listening to an interview with Warren Buffett, and Mm -hmm. he talked about how um, uh, Oracle appeared in his stock holdings for like a quarter, and then it disappeared. Mm -hmm. And they asked him about why was that? Were you the one who bought everything? And he said, yeah, I was the one who bought it. And um, I thought the same things about how good it was and reasonably priced and whatever. But I realized as I bought it and owned it, um, I didn't understand it as well as I thought I did. And so I sold it. And I would say that sales that are made like immediately after you buy a stock, in my experience, are good sales. Because of what you realize that you don't understand it. Like as soon as you own it, you yeah. decide in the first few months, oh, I, I want to sell this. So, so um, you know, selling a stock within the first quarter or something after you buy it makes a lot of sense. But after that holding for three years, yeah. I think that um, if you're right about the stock, waiting three years will probably be pretty good returns that mm-hmm. way. Yeah, it would make a lot of sense and people would be better off that way. And also on the other hand, not owning it that long after three years um, although I talk a lot about owning things long term, um, there's plenty of research that shows that if you're right about the value stuff, um, selling three years after buying a stock makes a lot more sense than owning it for 10 years or something. A lot of people 
especially me talking to like prospective investors and stuff, they talk about like how long do we hold a stock for? Right. And I think because we talk about when we value, we think about what a private buyer would pay for that business in five years. Right. A lot of people probably assume or get the impression that we hold for five years. And that's just not always right. the case. That's not, that's not the case at all. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it depends. We'll hold the stock for five years if the stock um, goes nowhere, you know, if the price stays the same. Mm-hmm. But if a price that triples or something, then yeah, you'll probably sell it. Cool. Um, next question. What does Jeff mean when he says he's not interested on in following stocks he already owns? Question mark. Does that mean that he will not read quarterly reports or earnings and transcript? Tan, uh, can't even speak. Transcripts rather than do an annual review of the stocks he already owns. Have you ever said that? I have said that, and that is true. Compared to most people, I spend much less time looking at the stocks that yeah. I already own. Um, I do read the. Uh, transcripts if they exist. We own a lot of stocks with our own transcripts, to be to be honest. I uh, own a lot of stocks that are um, overlooked stocks, and so not that many of them have transcripts, but some do. Uh, I can think of one. And um, I do read that. I read everything they put out quarterly. Um, what I don't pay a lot of attention to is what the, the movements in the stock price during the quarter. And it is true that I think my time is better spent um, learning about a new stock that I might buy than doing a lot of research for a stock that I already own. The reason for that is it's incredibly rare that something I learn about a stock in a quarter is going to fundamentally change my opinion of the stock. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was just talking about with like Buffett and Oracle in those first, when you're first analyzing a stock, let's say I want to own um, NACA or something and I've analyzed it for a while and then I decide I want to buy it and I buy it and then I own it for three months a lot of what I know about that stock happened in the research process and also in the owning it and trying to understand it and be comfortable with it even while I own it in the first few months. But the idea that a year or two down the road, I have a really different opinion because of some results they stated just isn't true. And so like I've talked to lots of people that way where um, I wrote about bank stocks and things in the past owned frost uh-huh. and people would talk every quarter about their results that's the question of did the Fed raise rates? What was the exact timing on that? The repricing of loans. It's it's there's so much um, noise, yeah, in individual quarterly results that it's really tough for people to um, analyze that. I mean, we, we own a stock, for instance, that like if one big customer leaves them because they get acquired or something, that would fundamentally change their results for a quarter. It wouldn't show up much in like the yearly results. So I do like to spend a lot more time, and I think most people should spend a lot more time trying to research a new stock than spending a lot of time worrying about the stocks they already own. I think a lot of it is worrying about it. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you feel like you should uh, spend a lot of time thinking about it, but you you try to do all the due diligence before you bought it. Yeah. Um, now, if if something looks different from one of the key things that you decided on was right about the stock in the beginning then you should um, really reconsider and maybe sell it. I have said before, one of the things I do is I rank all the stocks. Mm -hmm. So it's very important that people remember that um, if I own five stocks, I'm ranking which I like best, which I like least all the time. I'm keeping that in an Excel file. And so um, because I do that, I'm not spending much time thinking about my favorite stock at all. I'm only really thinking about the number five or number four stock. Because I wouldn't sell the stock I'm most comfortable with. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, if they if their biggest position in their portfolio, they they think about a lot. 
But to me, I don't think you should think about your biggest position in the portfolio that much because it's probably the safest, right? It's it, it shouldn't be in the theory. biggest if it's not, yeah. right? If you want, if you think you need to think about it a lot, don't make it the biggest position yeah. in your portfolio. It's kind of like the Greenblatt um, thing when he says like his biggest positions aren't the ones that he thinks he's going to make the most amount of money on; it's the ones that he feels he's not going to lose any money on. Right. Back in the day, he, mm-hmm. he said that. So probably the ones that he was most convicted on, but also that he thought was the safest. Yeah. So at this point, I don't think Buffett should be thinking a lot about Apple and Coca-Cola. Yeah. But uh, it's better to spend time thinking about Oracle, even if you decide that you're going to sell it or something. Mm-hmm. But in the very early stages, yeah. But you, he's probably obsessing about it at that stage. And that's what I'm doing when I'm looking at a stock. Um, before I buy it, it's taking up all my time mm-hmm. thinking about it. Yeah. Cool. Next question. Um the person asks if we have any recommendations on good company on companies with good written annual reports or 10Ks. Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, so I think some companies have very good um, annual reports in 10Ks. I mentioned NACO, I think, for what the business is. It yeah. explains it very well, but it's very complicated. Um, I thought um, back in the day, Strayer University, okay. um, they, they're no, I don't think they're public anymore, but I always enjoy okay. reading their 10Ks. Um, and like their annual letter from the share or from the the chairman. Yeah, I pointed out a while ago that I, I thought that um, Energizer had particularly good Energizer Holdings had particularly good um, annual reports, especially because of how it presented some yeah. accounting things and things like that. Um, I'm and, thinking like a long term investor. Yeah, um, Amazon is pretty good. I think if you go back and right. read Jeff Bezos, mm-hmm. um, all of his uh, letters, they've always been pretty good. And I mean, I just love Amazon, so the annual reports fun to read too. Mm-hmm. Berkshire. Um, who else do people obsess over? Um, Markel. Or yeah, you ever read that? Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of annual letters that you could probably find um, where people talk about their favorite capital allocators and things yeah. like that. Um, yeah. I don't. know. I mean, one of the things though is that it's. I, you have to get really comfortable um, reading difficult reports, I guess, reports where they maybe don't put in a lot of work to help you understand it because mm-hmm. that's where you're going to find a lot of situations that are attractive. So um, it's fine to read those things, but I, I that is a question I get a lot from people. Um, and in some ways, if their reports are really good, um, that means other people are likely to understand it well too. Yeah. So there is an element of having to get comfortable understanding businesses where um, – where that's not the case. Uh, for most people, I would say read investor presentations, especially to start with. Yeah, and they add more clarity. For yeah, sure. and especially anything that's planning a spinoff or has spun off, go back and read the thing that was its spinoff. You could read things that are IPO things. I never buy an IPO, but they'll give good explanations of, of uh, things there. Spinoffs and IPOs especially, but also buyouts, acquisitions of things will give pretty good uh, explanations. And you can kind of use that to help you understand situations on your own own but eventually to make money um you're usually gonna have to look at situations where the company isn't going out of its way to explain things to you and you're gonna have to kind of apply the lessons you learned from easier to understand reports mm-hmm. Alrighty, next question is jeff a full-time investor how does a typical day look like for him this is interesting because i've gotten this question a lot of times really i don't know why but people are in terms of emails that people say yeah, yeah that's a lot um i'm a full-time investor and writer for the website mm-hmm. yeah um, the, we have a member website and that is a significant part of, um, what we do. Um, other than that, yeah, a typical day involves, um, keeping track of certain lists, mainly the stocks that we already own and the stocks that I'm planning to look at, uh, I have a research pipeline, which is what we put out as the watch list. 
um, and writing some things, uh, usually a write-up of a stock for the website, and then there's a lot of reading of um, 10Ks, investor reports, things like that, uh, investor presentations. Um, may, I mean, in terms of time, just reading 10Ks is probably the, the biggest time. Um, I do collect some things from um, blogs and things like that from people. So there, I guess there is a part. I was going to say that reading 10Ks is the biggest part, but that might not be true. In terms of actual time spent, it's probably pretty evenly spent between writing, which includes responding to emails and things like that, and um, writing for the website and um, client letter memo, things like that. Yeah. Um, and then, so that's me, that's close to a third of things. Then a third of actually researching stocks. And then there's probably a third, honestly, of generating new ideas. Mm-hmm. Of re- so that means going through other things that people have talked about. So a lot of blogs and things, finding names of stocks that I might be interested in, and especially overlooked stocks. That's the thing that we focus on. And so that's a so, yeah, pretty bigger much amount of time than people might think is finding those ideas because people don't write about them as much. And uh, like if you deal with big stocks, you don't have to spend that much time getting sort of casting the wide net to find just ideas you're interested yeah, in. sure. But uh, a pr- more time than people might think is spent gathering up just names of stocks and things of microcap stocks and things like that, yeah. So pretty much, yes, you're a full-time investor. Yeah, and writer for the site, too. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, this guy says, suggestions for stock screens to run on a screener to find quality companies that are worth reading their annual reports, question mark. What stock metrics, question mark. I think it's strange to read the annual report before looking at a fundamental data, as I heard you did on the checklist episode. Um, let's see. Uh, screens are interesting. I do run some screens sometimes. I don't find them to be as useful as people might think. Uh, a very, very small number of ideas that I've had that turned out to be good ideas uh, originated in any sort of screen. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say a pretty wide screen is a good idea. Um, I like, uh, for UK stocks, there's, um, Sherlock Holmes, um, which is good. You can see long-term um, uh, financials there, like 10 or 12 years or something. I like that one. And you can create your own screens there. And I do, and would probably be things like um, EV to EBITDA is the most common one, um, but also price to book, which you could run separately. So look for things that are cheap on assets. Look for things that are cheap on EV to EBITDA. And then you can do things using the F score, the Z score to sort of sort it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually just EV to EBITDA and size is a big part of it. Um, I'm looking for smaller stocks. Um, if a stock is very cheap compared to price to book or very cheap compared to EVD or cheap enough compared to either EV to EBITDA or price to book, that's a good thing for a screen. That's not a reason to buy a stock. But, you know, anything below book value, you can read about, you can learn about it. Anything below, you know, I don't know. Uh, 10 times EBITDA uh, things that are three, four times book value or more than 10 times EBITDA, you're going to have a lot of expensive stocks on your list. And mm-hmm. so you're going to have to do a lot of reading for that. Sure. Um, yeah. Very little screening though. Same person asks, I think I remember Jeff mentioning that he thinks investors should invest in stocks in their home countries rather than abroad is the reason for this is it's more likely to be within our circle of competence and the markets are more inefficient. Yeah, you're more likely to have an informational advantage. Yeah. So, like, say Norway. I, I know some people from Norway. I've looked at plenty of stocks in Norway. There are cases where uh, half of the the um, 
uh, stock is in the hands of foreigners, uh, a lot of Americans and things like that. I've looked at tons of stocks in, I mean, even stocks that I've owned in Japan that are pretty small stocks are owned by some other Americans. Uh-huh. Uh, Americans go all over the world buying stocks. So, um, that's, I mean, that's the advantage that you have. The biggest disadvantage that I have as being someone who knows the most about the United States is how thoroughly looked over that market is both by institutions and individuals in the U.S. and also so many people outside the U.S. look into the U.S. to find ideas. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I mean, look in your home state, look in your home country. I mean, absolutely. I say that all the time to people in the U.S. If you live in Minnesota or something, look for every public company that's listed in Minnesota. There's a chance you might know more about it and things like that. Sure. Several of the stocks that I had um, that as a teenager I invested in and had good results with were headquartered in um, New Jersey. It's possible to learn more about those companies sometimes than other people know. Um, as an example, I invested in Village Supermarket, and we um, had an interview where we talked to someone about Village yeah. Supermarket. And you were an employee there. Yeah. And uh, the truth is I remember reading online about some people shorting the stock and mm-hmm. things like that. And uh, in a couple – two different cases I read about people shorting the stock. And um, it wasn't a heavily shorted stock or anything, but it was clear from reading about they had never been in a shop right. Mm-hmm. So that's a regional – supermarket in New Jersey, in, in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, in New York area. And um, it is something that someone from Texas who might know more about HEB or something or someone from Florida who might know about Publix or things like that um, would n- not know about. Mm-hmm. And so they're at a disadvantage. Or, for instance, Kroger. Like they'll say, oh, um, you'd read about something and they'd say, oh, Walmart and Kroger are going to come in and take their business. Yeah. Well, there's no Kroger in the state. Walmart, that's a very weak uh, region of the country for Walmart, right? Sure. But if you're living in Oklahoma or something, well, Walmart is incredibly strong there. So you have just a a different view of the entire world that way. And there are differences in the way that, you know, Hong Kong works from the way that um, major cities in the U.S. work. And you would know that, and I wouldn't know that. So you're at an advantage. You understand the law, too. And there's just a lot of, yeah, I completely agree. And it's kind of like we talked about, Greenbrick Partners and how we're in the Dallas market and how they they're headquartered here and a lot of their businesses in DFW areas. Yeah, well. so I mean, we, we could see it with our own eyes. I mean, I pass like their stuff every single day. Yeah, and and that's also something that like Peter Lynch talked about: buy what you know. Yeah, but when you people often explain uh, talk about that as if it's much simpler than what he was saying. But what he was really saying in his book was. Um, that he would talk to people who are in the drug business, yeah. right? And they would be, want to talk to him about oil stocks. They don't know anything about oil stocks. Yeah. They do know something about how d- the drug business works. So it's always good to pick industries that you know about that way. And then it's also good to talk to people you know who are in those industries and things. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I've done as much as possible with those senior diligence reports and things. Um, you know, I, I talked about that I... Um, researched uh, John Wiley, that I own Barnes & Noble, things like that. Well, I talked to people that I knew who were in publishing and things like that yeah. for years to try to understand things better, including understand the personalities involved better. I mean, that's one thing. If you live in Norway or you live in Hong Kong or you live in wherever, um, especially if it's a smaller place, you might know more about the people who um, are some of the biggest investors and some, run some of the biggest companies and things in a way that much of the rest of the world doesn't know about um, them. And especially things when it comes to like fraud and stuff like that, you're at a huge advantage. And political things of understanding how much certain things might be based on political connections or whatever versus people in other parts of the uh, world. I I read a lot about people in the U.S. or something talking about investing in, you know, Eastern Europe or something. Well, what do they know about 
um, how people in those countries got that wealth and how much they depend on certain political situations or whatever staying the same, especially when you're talking about, you know, banks or utilities sure. or, or things like that. So you're at such a big advantage potentially. You want to look for any situation where you might have a informational advantage versus the people you're buying and selling the stock with. So I talked before about like seek out stocks where you're buying from individuals instead of institutions who like have people on the payroll researching these things. Yeah. Same thing. Look for things you're really familiar with that maybe there's some other people buying and selling that don't know it that well. Cool. And then we're going to do the last question because like I said, this is a two-part series. Okay. I think it's a good one to stop with. He says, do you think investors should specialize in stock picking strategies, for example, like net-net stocks or have a more general approach, aka looking for value in different types of stocks? Uh, specialize. Yeah. That's something we've talked about, I think, a lot on the show. Yeah. I mean, anytime that something uh, is so obvious from a common sense perspective that you should buy it, absolutely do it. There shouldn't be a rule that you think of yourself as only a value investor, growth investor, that you rule out something else. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. But um, you should specialize as much as possible. And it's not a bad idea to have a couple specialties, which is what you can do. So you can, you know, when we talk about diversification and things like that, okay. Well, if you can be really good at understanding net nets, but if you can also be really good at understanding, um, you know, uh, higher growth companies or whatever, higher quality companies, well, part of your portfolio can be focused on net nets and another part can be focused on those sorts of things. I think the greatest danger is like um, taking a little bit of everything and thinking that you know um, what you're doing. So, you know, buying sort of the... Um, you know, uh, growth at a reasonable price or something, something that the crowd would think is a pretty um, uh, good idea, mm -hmm. but which you may not have really um, thought about that kind of concept carefully, right? So I think that something like net nets or something is a good idea, and especially if you're in a country where there are net nets um, or focusing on looking into that, that country. I mean, uh, yeah, it's something that, like, uh, I would look in Japan for net nets, um, because it's something that I've done before, and it's something I'd be willing to do again. Um, so I'd look at microcap stocks, spinoffs. Everyone can start working on spinoffs. That's a category that's always there. Something like net nets, there really are no net nets in the U.S. a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and in a lot of countries, there are no net nets. Um, so it's, net nets are great, but they're very hard to find. Um, so, And, you know, the thing with that is if you don't do that, then someone who comes in and tries to buy one net net is very likely to buy a fraud or something because they haven't spent time looking at those, just seeing what's out there. It, yeah. yeah, whereas you, by someone who focuses on net nets, would see very quickly that you just you get more accustomed to the fact that a lot of these are frauds or something like that, mm -hmm. whereas people coming from big stocks don't think that way. Now, what about specializing in a certain industry? Like our friend Nate mm -hmm. Tobik, um, he specializes in oddball stocks. He, he specializes in bank stocks, right? Banks are one of the best. Yeah. Or being a pharmaceutical investor or an oil investor. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Because you would just understand it in and out who the you know, hot shots are or not and just kind yeah. of understand the and whole And I'll industry. tell you right now in terms of, especially for U.S. investors, but for anyone, but especially, especially U.S. because the way it works, if you can learn to become really good on banks and insurers... I mean, that could just be, you don't need to know anything else. Yeah, and I think the answer, I'm guessing, is what you're getting to is what? Because there's so many public yeah, traded banks. There's so out. many. There's so many, mm -hmm. and small, too, that yep. are just pretty esoteric and don't get followed by you know a lot of people. Yeah. And a lot of big investors don't try to carefully 
understand the differences between the banks. They just go, oh, I want to allocate a bunch of money to banks, and they buy them. I see that a lot where like they buy a bunch of different regional banks instead of um, trying to pick out what exactly is the regional bank I want to own. Mm-hmm. Do you want to own Frost? Do you want to own Bank of Hawaii? Do you want to own, you know, uh, 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 BOKF, uh, BOK Financial, things like that. I mean, those are things that we wrote reports on that are kind of similar um, banks. I mean, Prosperity Bank in Texas is another one. So there's like four that I've named that are all kind of the similar size and things that people group yeah. together completely. But you can research them and decide which one you like best, mm-hmm. you know. And a lot of big investors don't do that. And the very long-term record can be pretty different for a bank and for an insurer. And those are the two that I would say, um, if you want to like, get an industry specialty that you really, really understand, the best one is, is banks and insurers. Mm-hmm. There are other things like restaurants and retailers and stuff that there's always a supply of. But there's often fewer small ones. And fewer um, sort of localized ones. They go national much quicker. Yeah. So it's harder. That used to be a good thing to do. And if you read like some of the old Peter Lynch stuff, he talks about that. But they've gotten to be where they raise funds and go national so quickly that I don't think that's the same uh, situation. But I think banks and insurers often are not all across the country and aren't that well known. They get little one-off companies. Yeah. Yeah. So so those are the two industries I'd say. If you're going to specialize banks and insurers. Cool. I think that is awesome. I want to thank everybody for sending in those questions. Again, if you do want to have your question asked or answered on the show, you could always DM me at Focused Compound on Twitter or just tweet it at me. And oftentimes I'll just take a screenshot of it. And then Jeff and I uh, do these Q&As, I don't know, probably once a month. And we'll just, mm-hmm. um, you know, we'll talk about it on the show. We want to get through all of them. Um, anything else to add that I forgot for the show? Nope, that's it. That is it. And if you do want to get access to Jeff's weekly memos. Yep. Sign up at Focus Compounding. There is a free part, a free part of the website now. Yeah. It has some content on there written by other investors, and then you'll also get a free memo. And the memo Jeff will have well. links to whatever free content there is. Exactly. So you just need to you basically just sign up, and then whatever free content there is, it'll be in that email. You'll have links to whatever. So you don't have to go around looking for it. That it'll is, always be the memo. That is correct. I want to thank everybody for tuning with us here today. Have a great week. We'll see you next week. Take care. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.